This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Jonas Hassan Kamiri read his story, as you would have told it to me, sort of, if we had known each other before you died, from the September 25th, 2017 issue of the magazine. Kamiri is a Swedish playwright and novelist whose work has been translated into more than 20 languages. His most recent novel, Everything I Don't Remember, was published in the U.S. last year. Now here's Jonas Hassan Kamiri. As you would have told it to me, sort of, if we had known each other before you died. I remember that it was fall, and that it was a weekend, and that I was sitting at home drinking apple juice and half-watching a rerun of a debate program. My neighbor across the courtyard had bought a new TV, and he was watching the same channel. It felt nice, somehow, that we were sitting on our respective sides of the courtyard and, I don't know, sharing something. I hadn't spoken with Katja in three days, but I wasn't worried. It was like that between us sometimes. Soon she would call and we'd meet up and everything would be back to normal. We had gone through worse things. Around lunchtime, the doorbell rang. I turned off the TV. Across the courtyard, the debate program was still on. The local politician raised his brow. The average mom shook her head. The host looked surprised. The doorbell rang again. Once. Twice. I sat perfectly still. I suddenly had this thought that it was Katja ringing the bell. She wanted to say she was sorry. Cross out what had happened. I sneaked toward the hall and looked out through the peephole. Police. The whole stairwell was full of police. Dark blue jackets. Stern expressions. Nearest to the door stood a blonde policewoman with a packet of snooze under her lips. In the back, a red-headed policeman had taken out his baton. There were probably only four or five of them, but there was something about the peephole perspective that turned them into an army. I was terrified. I stood there on the hall rug with palpitations and a dry tongue. Not because I had done anything, but because I don't know why. I decided not to open the door. Under no circumstances would I unlock it or make my presence known. I would sneak back to the living room, take a gulp of apple juice and sit in complete silence until they disappeared. It might have worked if the one in front hadn't suddenly opened the mail slot and looked in. I felt a rush of air from the stairwell against my bare knees and I heard a voice say, Nice cutoffs. I was so surprised that I stretched out my hand and unlocked the door. The police stormed in. The hall was filled with uniforms. Someone secured the apartment, while the one with the snooze dealt with me. She told me to put my hands on my head and spread my legs. But, 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 I said, there must be some mistake. I never heard that before, she said. No, I mean, I'm a civil engineer. Good for you, she said while frisking me. 
I work at the Patent and Registration Office, I said. Is that so, she said and nodded to her red-headed colleague who stood ready with the handcuffs. In the elevator down, I stopped resisting. My body realized that it was pointless, but my mouth was stubborn. It said that I had never, not once, defaulted on any loans. I always pay my taxes. I never jump the turnstiles to the subway. I go to spinning classes twice a week. When we got outside, I pointed at a car that was parked a little down the street, and I heard myself say, Do you see that gray Volvo over there? It's mine. I don't know why I said it. My Volvo was white, and it was parked two blocks away. The red-haired policeman led me to a patrol car. My body was sweaty and cold and my mouth babbled on, while the policeman seemed to be thinking of other things. My mouth said that my apartment was two and a half rooms and 600 square feet and that the balcony almost, but only almost, faced south. My mouth said that I was 100% innocent and that I was getting married this summer. The policeman, who until now had looked indifferent, suddenly got a little smile on his lips. It fluttered across his face. At first I thought I was seeing things. But when I said I'd been engaged to Katya for two years and that we were both looking forward to the wedding, it looked like the policeman was trying to keep from laughing. And then, finally, I understood what was going on. The policeman opened the door to the back seat. I did my best to play the innocent accused. I shook my head, I sighed and mumbled, this is completely scandalous. I didn't say thanks when he unlocked my handcuffs. I was about to say, I fucking hate cops, but it felt like too much. All the while, I struggled to keep a straight face. My friends hadn't forgotten about me. When I needed them the most, they came through. I imagined that we would start with a champagne picnic. The police car drives me at lightning speed to a nearby park where the whole gang has gathered. Andajel, Umid, Nico and Erik. And Miru, of course. Miru, who has planned everything in detail and who pops the first bottle of champagne when he sees the patrol car arriving. We look at each other and he smiles and I say, You fucker. You goddamn fucking nut. Miro flies at me and we fall all over the grass and get stains on our knees and alternately hug and fight until we're exhausted. Then he leads me over to the others who have laid out one of those thick, plaid blankets on the grass. Chilled bottles, fresh bread, expensive sausages. There's a toast and another toast and we drain our glasses and throw them over our shoulders so they break because we have tons of glasses and you only get married once. Or three times, Erik says, referring to himself. I waited in the back seat of the patrol car. It was taking longer than expected. The policeman who was guarding me took out his phone. Presumably he was texting Miro that uh, everything had gone according to plan. I could tell that I was smiling and tried to force my lips down into a tearse, blank expression. After the park, we do that thing I heard a colleague saying on the phone that her sister had to do for her bachelorette party. My friends, 
take out a video camera and put me in an inner tube, flippers, a bikini and a diving mask, and I have to walk around the city and sell hugs. Everyone who sees us gets that I have a bunch of friends who've planned this for me, and no one thinks that they're doing it to be mean. Next stop, the recording studio, where I have to do that thing that my dentist told me his son got for a bachelor party present. Record a song for my future wife. At first I say, nah, I can't sing. I have a terrible voice. But the whole gang, and Miro most of all, are like, no, come on, you can, you can. And when I start singing, the studio tech is a little shocked. And he says, wow, what pipes. Everyone in the gang sings along to the chorus, and the studio tech asks if it's okay if he saves the recording and maybe sends it to some of his influential friends in the music industry. Then there's some archery and a sauna and a seven-course dinner at a fancy restaurant. We end the night with drinks at the borrowed office of an architect. We play floor hockey in the conference room, which has a view of the whole city. Miro laughs the entire time and says, you looked scared as shit when you got out of the police car. And I play along and say, yeah. You're right. You totally got me. Everything felt 100% real. And it really did. It was the little details that were most impressive. Like that, the police car had dirty windows and dusty floor mats and didn't smell like a rental car, but instead like shrimp salad from a half-eaten baguette that someone had left on the front seat. And that the police woman finally came down from the apartment and had something on her nail that she scraped off on a light pole. And that she sat down on the baguette so that it stuck to the back of her uniform pants and the lower part of her jacket. And that the police in the passenger seat laughed while the driver swore and tried to get the worst of the goo off with a wet nap that smelled like airplane. I sat there in the back seat and thought that they were either real police who did this on the side or crazy good actors. When we had been driving for a few minutes, I leaned toward the black net that separated the front and back seat and whispered, you two are incredible. Excuse me, the guy playing the passenger policeman said. Oh, nothing, I said. Then I leaned back and tried to keep in the laughter that bubbled in my stomach. I felt happier than I had for, I don't know how long. The police looked at each other and the driver met my eyes in the rearview mirror. No one said anything, but there was an unspoken feeling of solidarity between us. We had some sort of, I don't know what. When the traffic increased, the driver turned on the siren and cars gave us the right of way. The sound from the siren seemed muffled somehow, as though it were coming from another police car several blocks away and not from ours. It still smelled like Airplane mixed with shrimp salad. If it had been a normal bachelor party, organized by a normal gang of friends, we would have gone directly to the champagne picnic. But my friends were more ambitious than that. Miro wanted me to have a bachelor party that would go down in history. That became clear to me when the police car arrived at the jail. Or the place that was supposed to represent the jail and which must have been somewhere on Kungsholmen, not far from the real jail. 
At first, I suspected that we were in a school that was closed for the weekend because the forms and the binders in the office where I was booked reminded me of a teacher's lounge. And the extras who were playing criminals looked suspiciously young. But when we started to walk through the wide corridors with markings painted on the floor and buzzing light strips on the ceiling, I started to suspect that Miro and the gang had rented a hospital. No matter where we were, it was impressive. Particularly the interrogation room. A lone light hanging from the ceiling, a two-way mirror on the wall, a table and two chairs. And the guy who was playing the interrogator, of course. A typical grumpy bad cop who smiled scornfully when I said that I didn't need a lawyer because I was 100% innocent. The policeman asked a lot of questions about me and Katja, how we met, when we last saw each other, what I had been doing on Thursday night between 10 o'clock and midnight. I mostly sat silently and looked down at the table and tried not to let the fact that his moustache was crooked irritate me. Once he said something that I thought was really quite mean, and I came close to leaning forward and ripping off his fake moustache. But I controlled myself. I listened to his questions and answered only when there was a chance to say something nice about Katja, because I knew, of course, that Miro and the gang were snickering behind that two-way mirror, and sometimes... I smiled at the camera because I assumed that they were filming everything in order to create one of those charming movies which they would show at the wedding. I looked into the mirror and explained to myself and the camera and the future wedding guests that I have never loved anyone the way I love Katya. She's amazing. She transforms me into a better version of myself. I wouldn't change a thing about her. Not her morning mood, not how she gets when she's been drinking, not even her underbite. I love that she's always glancing at other men because that reminds me of how lucky I am to have her. I love her bold makeup, her daring jokes, her puns, her scorn for people who don't understand that life is too short to ride the bus. I love her brutal honesty. Even when she accuses me of being a nerd or teases me for having more calculators than friends. She's the only person I can't imagine living without. She's my everything. I could almost hear Miro yelling, that's a rap from the next room. The policeman hummed and pretended to jot something in his notebook. Near the end of the interrogation, he asked what I thought of the accusations. I said that I had forgotten them. He repeated the accusations. I said that I had uh, forgotten them again. The whole time I was trying to think up a good response. He repeated them again in an angry voice and I answered, I want a lawyer, even if this process is just one big joke. I could almost see Miro and the gang laughing themselves to pieces on the other side of the mirror. After the interrogation, I was taken to my cell. It wasn't as impressive as the interrogation room. Not to sound ungrateful, but here was obvious that Miro and the gang had, how should I put it, been a little stingy. 
Instead of fixing up a real cell with dirty floor, a freestanding toilet and the kind of bars that the guards drag the batons along, they put me in a small yellow room with shelves on the wall, a desk of light wood and a fat TV without a remote. Instead of having to sleep in a rickety bunk bed above a tattooed snoring guy with a razor blade behind his upper lip, I got a completely normal bed with sheets, a mattress and a wall-mounted reading lamp. Instead of risking being raped in the shower by a gang of bikers with walrus mustaches, I was presented to the day guard Thomas, who welcomed me to my room in a soft voice and recommended that I get some rest before dinner, which would be fish sticks and mashed potatoes. Is there juice? I asked. Thomas nodded. It all felt more or less like a hostel, but the door was metal had a peephole that you couldn't see out of and was locked 24 hours a day. The first night was a little rough, but I reminded myself that I wasn't alone. I lay on my bed, which smelled summery from detergent. I listened to the silence. I looked up at the ceiling and thought about how my friends were sitting in an identical room on the other side of the wall with surveillance headphones on and a big whirring tape reel in the background. When they saw me looking for hidden cameras, they tried to keep from laughing. After a while, I started to wave at them and speak. I looked toward the ventilation duct and said, Hi, Miro. Hi, Erik. Shit, what a circus you've started. You're crazy to do all this for me. But that's enough now, okay? Come out now. When I didn't get an answer, I lay quietly and imagined how I looked on the black-and-white surveillance screen. My grainy body, like an almost transparent phantom. I looked credible as I was lying there on the bed. It didn't look like I was crying. My lawyer was played by a professional woman with black hair and a briefcase that must have been bought second-hand because it looked believably worn out. When I asked her if she also knew Miro and the gang, she looked at me so intently that I felt like a mirror in an interrogation room. She said, For the last time, I don't know Miro or his so-called gang. If you want to try playing confused in the courtroom, you may, but you don't need to do it with me. I know that you know that I am a real lawyer. I know that you know that this is a real jail. And I hope that you understand that you've been accused of a real crime that will be tried in the Stockholm District Court. They have found burn marks on your jacket. They have witnesses who saw you on her balcony. You're risking a lengthy prison sentence. Do you understand? I nodded and thought, she's good. She is really damn good. Did her homework? Convincing. At first I thought she was a little miscast because she chewed gum and had kind of tick where she touched behind her ear with her finger and then smelled the finger. But now, after her outburst, I understood that she was perfect. Before she left, she leaned toward me and said, Hey, think about whether you really want to continue this act because I don't think it's going to help you. Between us, you're not particularly convincing. But you are, I thought.
She got up and put her papers into her briefcase, which was so wrong that in some way it became right. I don't remember much of the trial itself. I slept badly. The days started to run together. I felt feverish and weak. The judge spoke, and my lawyer spoke, and the prosecutor spoke, and sometimes I raised my gaze from the table and saw how fake everything looked. Miro and the gang must have run out of money because this room was so inauthentic that no one could take it seriously. It looked like a large conference room. The wood was uh, light instead of dark. The judge wore a baggy gray suit instead of one of those uh, dress-like things with a white wig. The juror's box, which should have been enclosed by a little railing, was a regular table, and instead of a jury, there were three half-asleep retirees playing lay judges. The prosecutor read the paper during breaks and didn't yell, Objection, Your Honor, a single time. Not even the visitors' benches felt authentic, because they were completely empty, except for Katya's sisters with their clumsily made-up eyes. Once, in the middle of it all, a school class came in. The students sat down and listened for a few minutes. They yawned. The teacher looked at a bus timetable. Then they got up and left. I remained seated next to my lawyer and thought that they were probably just as disappointed as I was. No one disrupted the order. No one came rushing in, screaming, this man is innocent. No one cried, besides Katya's sisters. But they were fake tears. The actors playing the witnesses claimed to have seen me outside Katya's apartment. A young man with a full beard said that I'd climbed up on the dumpster next to the streetlight outside her bedroom. A lady said that she'd been out walking her dog and saw me jump down from the balcony and almost get caught in the rose bushes. A few minutes later, she'd seen the first flames. It was so obvious the witnesses were lying that I couldn't even pretend to be upset. I just sat there and felt sick and feverish. Then it was Katya's turn to take the stand, but she didn't want to do it while I was in the room. I understood. She probably wouldn't be able to keep from laughing if she saw me. Just as I was being escorted out, she came in from the other direction, and our eyes met for one second, maybe two, and at first I wasn't sure it was really her because they'd made up her cheeks with bubbling yellowish blisters, and on her throat I could see black marks. One arm was wrapped in a bandage. I wanted to smile at her and say, soon it will all be over. But I didn't have time because the guard closed the door. The verdict came more quickly than expected, and apparently that was a bad sign, my lawyer said, but I didn't care. I just wanted it all to be over. I just wanted the cell door to open and Miro and the gang to come rushing in and shout, surprise. Suddenly I would have a bouquet in one hand and a glass of champagne in the other and all the actors and extras and cameramen would come out from behind the scenes and stand in a big circle and applaud when Miro gave a toast to the world's best friend. But instead I was led back into the courtroom that didn't look like a courtroom. 
the judge who didn't look like a judge, read the verdict that didn't sound like a verdict. After one, everyone looked at me, as though they were waiting for me to, I don't know, say something. But I was quiet. I had nothing to add. The judge banged his little gavel on the table, and no one applauded, and no one booed. No journalists wanted to ask questions, and I didn't need to put a jacket over my head when I was led out of the room, because there were no photographers who wanted to take my picture. I was led back to my yellow cell. Katya went home to her smoky stairwell. I was moved to an institution. She moved to a new apartment with a secret address. I spent my days putting black and sometimes brown shoelaces in transparent plastic packaging. She spent her days putting ointment on her blisters and calling the insurance company. I spent my nights dreaming of Miro and the gang. She spent her nights dreaming of me. I was released after two years and ten months. I went home to my old apartment. I put on my cutoffs, sat on the sofa with a glass of apple juice and turned on the TV. It was a documentary about hyenas and I looked out at the courtyard to see if my neighbor might be watching the same show. But he had moved or else he had put the TV in a different room. For several weeks I tried to get into playing the role of myself. I thought about contacting Katya. Sometimes I walked past her old apartment. Once I called her office and said that I was a friend who wanted to plan a surprise party for her and needed her new address. They said that unfortunately they couldn't help me. The second time I called I got disconnected. The third time I don't remember what happened. Eight months later, I died in a moped accident in Portugal. One week later, I was resurrected in Stockholm when Katja found out what had happened. Suddenly, I was back in her life. I was lying beside her when she woke. I followed her when she ran to the bus. I gave her a thumbs up if she made a sale at work. And I comforted her when she collapsed in the bathroom with the faucet running so that no one would hear her crying. In the evening, I followed her to dinner. I didn't sigh when she wanted to take a taxi, and I didn't say in the elevator on the way up that she had too much makeup on. I didn't clear my throat when she poured her third glass of wine before the appetizer. I didn't imitate her when she began to slur her words. I wasn't ashamed when she suddenly rolled up her sleeve and showed everyone the pitted, reddened burn on her arm. Hey! Look at this, she shouted. You can all complain as much as you want about how your partners forget to buy milk or clip their toenails at the kitchen table, but my last relationship was a real trial by fire. Her friends laughed. Maybe I needed to light a fire under myself to finally end it. Her friends' laughter was a little more forced. Or else it was my fault, because I was playing with fire and I was bound to get burned. At this point, her friends stopped laughing and asked the hostess if she needed help in the kitchen. When Katya went to the bathroom, I held her damp forehead, and when she had wiped her mouth with the back of her hand, I helped her put on her shoes. The fake me lay in a morgue in Portugal, waiting to be transported home. The real me 
wandered home with Katja on a warm summer night. She held my hand unnecessarily hard and whispered, Don't leave me. Please leave me. Don't leave me. Please leave. At night, I watched over her. I stood on her balcony and looked into her bedroom with my hands like two white parentheses pressed against the glass. Soon she got used to it. She stopped waking with a start when she saw my silhouette. It was almost like we were together again, like we were giving each other one last chance. Katja told her older sister what had happened. I, the only person who had really loved her, was dead. Katja's sister sighed and did her best to comfort her. Then she hung up and told her partner that I, that crazy tech nerd who had stalked her little sister, was dead. Her sister's partner told her orthopedist. The orthopedist told his squash partner. The squash partner told his colleague who told her babysitter who told you. My name roamed on. From mouth to mouth. From living room to hotel room. From waiting room to bedroom. Haven't you heard? I'm dead. I rented a moped in Portugal. I was on vacation. I was there by myself. I was there with some friends. I crashed into a billboard. A taxi opened its door and I didn't have a helmet on. I drove off a cliff. I had just been set free. I had been out for six months. I had been found guilty of attempted murder. I was put away from manslaughter. I was convicted of arson. Katja survived. She suffered second-degree burns. She was in a coma. She was fine. Poor her. Serves her right. She had tried to break up with me. She had just met someone. She had been cheating for eight months with a guy at her office called Philip Videl. It was all in my imagination. I climbed up on a dumpster and saw it with my own eyes. I threw a firebomb through the kitchen window. I poured gasoline through the mail slot. I accidentally set fire to a mattress on her balcony. I was drunk. I was sober. I was high. I was depressed. It was all just a scam to collect insurance money. I was terrified of losing the one person who was my everything. I had just graduated from the Royal Institute of Technology. I worked full-time at the Patent and Registration Office. I was in your grade at school. I was arrested and thought, that it was all just a bachelor party. When you hear my name, you recognize it, but you have to go home and get out an old yearbook to remember my face. There I am, middle row, third from the left, with the collar of a white polo shirt sticking up under a V-necked sweater. I'm smiling. I could be anyone at all. You have no memory of me. Or, wait... You remember that we played floor hockey together a few times in the schoolyard and that I sang in the choir and that I had cutoffs with super cool frayed edges. Once you were standing behind me in the line for the juice machines in the lunchroom and when I turned around I had two glasses of apple juice instead of one. And somehow you were impressed that I had realized that you could take two glasses at once. That's all you remember about me. We weren't friends. You barely knew me. But I remember you. 
I remember when we were so close that people couldn't tell us apart. I remember your parents' phone number, your neatly folded cutoffs, and your constant fear of not being special. I remember when you started claiming that fictive characters are way better than friends, since they are less annoying, more interesting, and never die. You stopped returning my calls. When I needed you the most, you were nowhere to be found. And when I died, you started seeing me everywhere. On sidewalks, in shop windows, on balconies. So you decide to write my story. You dress me in cutoffs. You force extreme amounts of apple juice into me. You retell the most painful week of my life as if it were a never-ending bachelor party. And it's not until the end, about here, that you realize what you've done. I'm not bitter, Miru. I'm just dead. That was Jonas Hassan Kamiri reading his story, as you would have told it to me, sort of, if we had known each other before you died. This is his first story in The New Yorker. Want to see your favorite writers on stage? At the New Yorker Festival, October 6th through 8th, you can attend conversations and panels featuring incoming poetry editor Kevin Young, novelists Edward St. Aubin, Azar Nafisi, George Saunders, Jennifer Egan, Sherman Alexie, and more. See the full festival lineup and buy tickets at newyorker.com festival or download the festival app. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Curtis Sittenfeld reads The Surrogate by Tessa Hadley. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing the writer's voice in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>